Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium. This time we meet a conductor who was born and raised in New Zealand and now lives and works in Scotland. She conducts in the concert hall as well as opera and ballet and she is soon to become music director of Symphony Nova Scotia. It's a great pleasure to welcome Holly Matheson. So Holly, good afternoon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. As with everybody else, I'm going to start right at the very beginning. Can you tell us about your earliest days of music? Absolutely. Um, for me, as with the vast majority of professional musicians that came through family, my grandmother was a pianist, my maternal grandmother, and she lived in a tiny little country town in New Zealand, but ended up getting the highest mark in LTCL in the, the Commonwealth or something like that in the 1930s at some point. Anyway, she was amazing and uh, was offered a place at, I think, Trinity as a teenager to, to move to London to do that, which was enormous for, for someone living in a tiny country town in New Zealand. Uh, but she found herself in the family way, as they used to say back then, and had to marry as happened with a lot of women in that generation, I think. But she continued teaching. She taught all of her children to some degree and most of the grandchildren. And I was the youngest grandchild to be living in close proximity. So I was sort of the last hope. <laughs> and it also coincided, it was a perfect storm. Uh, my immediate family, my parents and my two sisters and I, we were in a really dreadful car accident and when I was two. So I ended up living with my grandma for quite a bit of my childhood up until about the age of 10. And so even more so, I was right there. I was the last possible grandchild within reach to try and turn into a musician. And it became actually a really lovely bond between us. It's difficult studying with a family member, I have to say. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, I taught my daughter the violin very briefly. And yeah, it's very difficult to teach or be taught by somebody in your family. Yes, and especially with grandma, there was that slight level of desperation about <laughs> of desperately wanting me to succeed and knowing I was the last chance and also grieving her daughter, my mother, who by this point was dying or had died. So there was all, all sorts of baggage around piano with grandma, but at the same time, it was really a huge therapeutic thing. And I remember when I, when I stayed with her, I'd sleep on the sun porch, which was a tiny little room at the front of the house. Um, and the, the music room was through the wall and she would play every night as I was falling asleep. That was her main time for playing. And so I would go to sleep every night with the sound of Metner and Poulenc and Rachmaninoff and all of the stuff she loved. Wow, that's quite a story. Yeah, it's cool. And um, so that was, that was the earliest music. And the other big part of that part of my life was I did ballet very, very seriously. So all of the ballet repertoire and using music as a physically expressive sort of thing was a was a big thing early on but then once I got to sort of high school age um I should add I was a really rubbish pianist <laughs> I never practiced I was so lazy but I was good at um faking sight reading if you know what I mean I could sit down and play anything I'd heard I was probably playing at the wrong key but but I knew how it went, you know, and I could fake things very well. So I ended up being a school pianist and things like that. Um, and I, when I was about 14, I was sort of unofficially adopted by another mum in another family. And she went to a really lovely Presbyterian church in town. So I went and, and sang in the choir there for about five years, which was great. It was really wonderful training as anyone who's sung the cathedral or church choir will uh, will know so it sounds like you maybe had a choice at some point between thinking about being a ballet dancer or maybe taking your music further on into your life is that true absolutely and the first choice was always ballet 
um, 100%. And actually, I went and studied full-time at the New Zealand School of Dance, but I, I got very sick with glandular fever, and I had a, a very bad injury in my left shin that wasn't clearing up. So I went back home to Dunedin, and which was my hometown, and I had the option of going back to high school to finish off. And I, I remember going in for one day and seeing people getting told off for not having their socks pulled up. I thought, God, I've had a taste of freedom. There's no way I can go back to this. But um, I'd been studying composition with the local composition professor at the university since I was about 14, just informally. Um, so he said, well, why don't you just come and start your music degree a year early? And where was that? Was that still in New Zealand? Yes, uh, the University of Otago, uh, which is in my hometown, right down the bottom of New Zealand, a very strong Scottish diaspora. It's basically the map of Edinburgh slapped on a bit of Pacific Highland. Um, so I was studying there. Composition was my major, but I did conducting with the same teacher, Jack Spears, who's a Yorkshireman, actually. He was from Harrogate and uh, moved to one of various British um, teachers who moved out and got university positions out there sort of in the 60s and 70s, I suppose. Uh, and he was great. He was a phenomenal conducting teacher um, and composition, um, but conducting pretty rapidly took over for me. Yeah, I really, it was a really nice place to study. It was the sort of city that once people knew you were interested in doing something like conducting, they would throw some opportunities at you. You'd get a call from a church choir that needed someone for maternity leave for six months or little amateur orchestras who needed someone to take a rehearsal. And eventually the local opera company and the local orchestra and things would, you know, they gave me work. There's no way I deserved to do. I had no idea what it was. And that was facilitated partly by that teacher, Jack Spears, but also Techman Evans, who was a good eight or nine years ahead of me um, in the scheme of things, but had, funnily enough, been my high school choir conductor. And that's the first conducting I ever did, actually. He had to go to hospital one time. So he uh, got, since I was a school pianist, unofficially, he got me to take the rehearsals. Interesting, um, looking ahead, that at that stage you had Jack Spears and Tequin Evans teaching you conducting, but just a very, very short list of the people that I know that you had some lessons with on various courses. Mark Stringer, Neil Thompson, John Carew, Naomi Yervi, Pavo Yervi. Um, I'm assuming they all had very, very different styles. Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. And I... I've been fairly lucky, actually. I, I sort of had this idea with masterclasses and things, and even doing a full course with someone. Each conducting teacher, there's, there's a time in your career where they will, and you're learning with what they have to teach will be useful to you. I don't think you have one teacher all the way through that gives you everything you need, or at least if there is such a person, I've not met them. But rather it's a little bit a matter of luck or research to work out right that teacher is awesome for this tool for the toolkit and this is the time I'm ready to learn that that skill or that element of it or take that on so there might be a teacher that works absolutely brilliantly for yourself at a master class but someone else in the room either is past needing that level or or isn't ready to take in what they're going to teach or something I could be wrong about that. I don't know. Disagree with me if you like. Uh, no, um, I think uh, it's much the same with instrumental teaching in the fact that if you take on every single word that your teacher says to you, you become a carbon copy of that. I mean, for instance, my violin teacher was a good foot smaller than me. She had tiny hands and I have massive, great big shovels. And so, you know, I couldn't take on absolutely everything that she told me because it just didn't work for my body shape let alone musical stuff. So, and I think it's the same with conducting. Um, you know, we all use our bodies in different ways, but there are some basics that you can grab and take from a teacher 
uh, and as you say, you 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 take something from one person, something else from another, then you put it all together in your own jigsaw puzzle in your mind, and and hopefully form a uh, a good way of going forwards, don't you think? Yeah, and sometimes you something just sits in the back of your mind percolating for a couple of years, and it's not until after you've had contact with another teacher or mentor or colleague that it sinks into place what what they meant by it two years ago um so it just sort of sits on a shelf waiting to be understood or something yeah i mean fr from that list uh i said earlier on of those amazing names any of those stand out uh to you as giving you advice that you you would still think about to the present day absolutely um Paavo Yervi was an amazing teacher. It really surprised me. Um, I, I didn't associate him with teaching. He's in the full throes of his own career, but he was an absolutely brilliant teacher. And part of it was that because he teaches just, I think, the one course a year at his, at the essentially the Yervi family reunion festival in, in Estonia, um, he he's not distracted with anything else so he really just devotes all his time to what he's doing there without distraction and you all go to the pub afterwards and get quite trolleyed so it's a very social thing as well and you all become friends for the two weeks but it what was particularly interesting to me well i remember him giving up his own lunch break along with the principal chalice to just to spend time with me talking about the breath in the in the aftakt we just spent a good 40 minutes just trying to connect the breath to the, the physical gesture and help me try and feel that one little thing. So he was very generous and very specific in his teaching. But I remember from that course marvelling at how good he was at teaching women because, and I, I do not mean this in a derogatory way at all, but he loves women and he's not shy at all about looking at women's bodies or talking about women's bodies so there was this really wonderful sense of no he's he's genuinely thinking about what it's like as a player to watch gendered bodies in either direction and thinking speaking very openly about what his responses and how it feels and so we got into these great discussions about sort of these deeply ingrained cultural things around feminine and masculine gestures and he we were talking about the fact that some of us in the class, there's one woman in particular, really musical, really good, but whenever she wanted something, she'd sort of cock her head slightly to the side. And so he just got her to do it again and again and again in front of him until he said, I've got it. You look like you're my mum telling me off. <laughs> That's why I don't want to play it. And if, it, if, if you're a man doing that gesture, it would have a different meaning. I'd never had a teacher admit, yeah, there is a difference with the way we receive women's bodies and men's bodies and everything else, you know, and, and teach it in a really positive way. It was really cool. Um, Sasha Polychuk in St. Petersburg was a tremendous teacher for me. <laughs> everything connected to harmony, which I loved. I'd gotten that from um, Jack Spears. Our conducting lessons were just harmony lessons, basically. And the same with John Carew. He doesn't do anything physical. It's really just talking about harmony. So I loved that about Sasha, but also he had that very Russian thing of talking about tiny micro details of the body, which as a ballet dancer, I enjoyed. Was he a, was he a Musin protege or prodigy? He was, he was, and he, Musin had chosen him to take over the conservatoire. And the other masterclass, which sticks out as being pretty extraordinary was um, the, the Dirigenten Forum in Berlin runs this thing called uh, the Critical Orchestra, das Kritische Orchester. It is the most mind-blowing thing. <laughs> it's just a full orchestra made up of players from all of the orchestras all over Germany. They come and donate their time for free for a week, and they are the teachers. There's no conducting teacher in the room. Oh, wow. It's intense, and most of it's run in German, and my German at the time was pretty minimal. But there were these hilarious things, you know, the bassoonist at some point was just kind of screaming at me, and I must have looked like I was about to pee my pants or something, because the, <laughs> the concertmaster that day stood up and he said, it's okay, 
he's paying you a compliment. <laughs> but it was just this extremely aggressive German rah, from the back row of the winds. Um, but that was cool. It was really amazing. A lot of old, retired Bayreuth players come, coming out of the woodwork, coming out of retirement to play for it. And they would teach you how to do the Wagner. And there was one player, I can't remember his name, who was Russian. He'd been playing in Berlin for years, but was originally from Russia. So he, he led the Shostakovich session and things like that. So you were learning from the players. And it's, it was that interesting thing that sometimes they didn't know a technical way of telling you what wasn't working, but it, what they did say was so much more insightful because it was all about breath and preparation and how it related to what they needed instead of how it looked. Um, so that was a brilliant masterclass. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying, but great. So as well as many, many masterclasses, um, I read that you've been assistant to quite a few conductors as well with various orchestras. Christoph von Dachnani, Esa Becker-Salonen, Marin Olsop, Donald Runnicles, Peter Ungian, and Thomas Sondergaard. That's quite a list. That's quite a who's who of conductors. How did they use you uh, as an assistant conductor or advise you or teach you or um, anything that you can tell us about what it was like being assistant to all of those people? Uh, it was really different for each of them. Sometimes it was something they hadn't set up, so they were quite disinterested. The, the one with Dohnani was interesting kind of contextually. It was just a single gig, uh, and it was when I was the librarian at the Philharmonia, which was my first job when I got here, full-time librarian. And they all knew that I conducted and I was doing various bits and bobs with some of the players and helping out with things and often doing offstage conducting and things like that. But anyway, it, this was for a, a concert at either Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle, one of the royal gigs that the Philharmonia does. And it was a whole lot of Wagner excerpts and they needed someone to conduct the offstage horn from behind this strange little closet in between the the staff kitchen and the throne room or something crazy like this and of course there's no you you can't start putting in cameras and screens and things we just had to sort of peer through a hole in this however hundred year old wall <laughs> and hope that we were hearing without too much delay and and do it from that um but he's he's a lovely man he's very generous for Esapeka it was Again, very specific. It was one occasion um, when he was recording in a part of his violin concerto for an ad on TV. And he had to leave halfway through the session to go and catch a flight. So when, whenever you can't specifically see him or his hands in the video, it's me conducting. <laughs> which is pretty cool. um, and that was funny. It was hilarious. It was a massive American company doing it. So there was smoke machines and, you know, they wanted the violinists to sit in a, you know, what looked beautiful visually, but bore no relationship to what an orchestra would do. So we had an amazing day. It was really funny, very surreal. And of course, I'd been the librarian for two years and most of them had never seen me conducting. We were just mates. And I'd never conducted an orchestra that wonderful. It was, you know, I should have been far more nervous than I was. But anyway, I put the first downbeat down and, of course, they played half an hour after I was expecting them to. And they just saw this sort of little look of surprise on my face and they all just burst out laughing and in a very kind, loving, you know, 40 of my best friends kind of way because they knew exactly this that moment in your career where you felt that for the first time. That's really cool it was with us. You know, it was this lovely, lovely atmosphere. With the longer assistantships, um, Runnacles was came about through the fellowship at the RCS that I had. And my main teacher for that was Gary Walker, who is a Scottish conductor. Again, a phenomenal teacher. I absolutely loved learning from him. Um, he 
he was very, very generous with his time. He's much busier now. I think he finds it harder to juggle, but he's the kind of teacher or the kind of conductor that, you know, he can hear a dog fart 10 blocks away and tell you what pitch it was. <laughs> so he was an amazing teacher. And then we would go down, um, the other fellow and I, and we would assist Runnacles whenever he was in town. And that was, he used us a lot for listening to things and running notes around the orchestra and that sort of thing, but we didn't never got to do any conducting. And it was great to watch him rehearsing. I mean, I saw him put Wozzeck together in a day and a half or something insane like that. Wow. And yeah, he, he was, it was really impressive. Um, Peter Ungin and Thomas Sondergaard, that came about through, I was the, the full-time assistant at the RSNO for two years which is one of the few, I mean, CBSO has a similar position, um, LSO, the RSNO, and sometimes the Halle have an assistant. But there are very few positions like that. So lucky to get it. Peter was a lovely person to work with. He was very generous and caring, and he knew the, the unique personality of that orchestra as well as I did. So we would, we would talk quite openly about how felt to be in those situations in rehearsal and their new chief conductor now um thomas zondergaard is equally loving generous very genuine man and was a real joy to to assist and my goodness you learn so much from him each rehearsal was like a hardcore musicianship class but everything both of those men well, they were very, very different. I learned different things from from Peter. It was he was just like a dad. He was so kind and generous, and always we would go for a meal when he and his wife were in town. They even came round to our little flat one night for a cup of tea, you know. And, and of course, to them it would have been so humble, but they were just so um, kind and generous spirited. Lovely, lovely people to get to know. So, as you said, you, your first job when you came to the UK was librarian at the Philharmonia, but I have also noticed your name in the end credits after concerts on the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall. Can you tell us something about that? Yes. <laughs> so, I did the librarian job for two years, and being an Antipodean, I, I had access to a particular visa that gave me two years of not needing to be sponsored by an employer. So I did it on that, and then I was coming to the end of that. I had grey hair, I'd had a run-in with cancer. I'd, you know, like it just ravaged my body doing that job for the Philharmonia. I loved it. It was two of the happiest years of my life, but it's exhausting. And I thought, well, do I really want to give up on conducting completely? Because you can't do both with a job like that. And am I committing my life to being a librarian? I thought, no, it is doesn't feel like this is what I want to do for life but in giving it away I had to leave the UK because I didn't have sponsorship so I moved to Berlin was unemployed as one can be in Berlin and survive and uh, a friend well actually John Carew's daughter was playing <laughs> in Dirigen Forum workshop that I talked about and she made contact and me up having lessons with John Carew but also her husband is uh, the big boss at the Berlin Phil Digital Concert Hall and she said look you know they always need people who can read a score so I used to go in on the weekends and um, yeah do the score reading for the film directors and for the really long nights you know like a Mahler symphony with loads of cues, visual cues that the, the camera director wanted to cut between, you know, you'd, there'd be hundreds of cues that you're calling in German and by the end of it I would just be inventing numbers because my brain would be so addled. Um, but it was so fun, it was a really nice job and I did a lot of those sorts of things for the Philharmonia when I was there too. Can you tell us how your career started to take off? What were those early first guest conducting engagements? 
Well, it started off, before I left New Zealand, I'd done a lot of opera and, well, in a, I say a lot of opera, in a, in an, in a graduate student, amateur, small town kind of way that had been my main work. And so the first thing I did was got some work assisting at uh, Opera Holland Park, bless them. They let me be chorus mistress for a year for a couple of the shows and I, I did a bit of assisting and the following year they gave me the associate conductor on the young artist program, the Christine Collins program as it was then. And through that, I mean, all of those little summer opera festival, opera festival things around the UK, once you've done one of them and not killed the, the show, then often the other summer festivals will pick you up for a bit of assisting as well. So I ended up going to Garsington, doing the same thing. And from that got spoke at Opera North, doing the same thing in Longborough. So I made my way around those mid-size opera houses and summer opera houses doing assisting. And then I ended up getting the RCS Fellowship, which... I know we're talking about work, but, but and that's more of a study thing, but it was sort of half and half. You become like a staff conductor at the conservatoire. And yes, you get lessons and training and you, you work with the Red Note Ensemble and you still get lessons from Gary, but you also do a lot of actual conducting work and you get hired elsewhere. So from that, um, I ended up at the RSNO assistant job. From those connections, well, actually, before the RSNO job, I got um, the resident conductor at the National Youth Orchestra of Scotland, which was amazing, absolutely amazing. Some of the hardest work I've ever done because I had the, the youngest age group. And, you know, when you've got an orchestra, you know those youth orchestras, they're massive, they're absolute behemoths. And we had everything from eight years old up to about 16 in the one orchestra, often sitting right next to each other. You've also founded, with your husband, the Nevis Ensemble. How did that come about? Nevis uh, started more recently. So I finished at RSNO and, and then started doing the sort of BBC orchestras and Scottish ballet and various bits of that kind of conducting around the country. But Nevis, actually, um, we, we didn't found it. We we were hired by Jamie Munn, who runs it. It's his brainchild. And he had been asking around Scotland to see which conductors people recommended. And these two names came up repeatedly. He didn't realise until further along the process that we're husband and wife. <laughs> so it actually worked out <laughs> very nicely. And, um, and the three of us, plus the, the other sort of staff and lead senior players, we make a good team. It's one of the weirdest projects I've ever done, but probably the work, one of the pieces of work I do that I enjoy the most. And it, it works on the premise that music is for everyone everywhere. There's plenty of music going on in concert halls, so we, we just don't go to them. Instead, we will go to supermarkets in some of the lower socioeconomic areas in Glasgow, or we'll go to the top of a mountain or go out to the remote Hebridean islands or um, turn up in prisons. So we do, it's, people call it outreach, but for us, that's just all we do, basically. That's our main work. That sounds wonderful. It's very cool. It's very, very cool. And Scotland is the right place to be doing it politically and philosophically. Um, it's, it's fertile soil for what people wanting that and respecting it and liking it, liking to support it and wanting to see it in more communities. So we get a lot of support from the public, a lot of support from foundations and, and the Scottish Parliament, which is brilliant to know that what you're doing is valued by people other than yourselves, which is often a difficult thing in the performing arts. So outside of Scotland, where else did your guest conducting take you at this time? Uh, so coming out of the RSNO assistantship, it, it led into lots of work with the BBC orchestras and Ulster and LPO and LSO, mainly education and outreach work to start off with, as most conductors of my generation do. Um, and actually, I think a lot of conductors 
overall do now. It's a huge part of our work and incredibly challenging. <laughs> this is so much harder than people think. I said this the other day. Don't you think that those type of concerts are some of, if not the hardest concerts you ever get to conduct? Absolutely. Um, nothing like yeah, nothing like as easy as a as an overture, a concerto, and a symphony. I know, and and also you usually you're doing it um, on a tiny amount of rehearsal. So okay, the first thing I did with the LSO in their full setup was Rite of Spring on an hour and twenty minutes of rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I mean, this couldn't be madder, but you realize actually you, it, it forces you to trust players, one thing, which is a good thing to learn. And it forces you to learn to be economical with your rehearsal. Um, but it, then I did find that when I started getting proper grown up gigs with BBC Phil and that sort of thing, I could see these, you know, two and a half days of rehearsal. What, what, what on earth am I gonna do with that? <laughs> so I had to really, um, I found that nerve-wracking, having too much rehearsal time, more than I was used to. And of course, it, you always fill it up. But at the time, you sort of think, oh gosh, I, give me 20 minutes and I know how to you know, slap something together. But this is terrifying to be able to think of something interesting and insightful to say for two and a half days. I don't know if I have it in me. <laughs> but of course, you start working and, it, and it's fine. It works out. The other conducting that I've done quite a bit of in these years has been ballet, which is funny coming full circle from having studied ballet to now be in the pits. Um, and I really enjoy it. I don't quite understand why it's often looked down upon as the various, out of the various forms of conducting and often the worst paid because it's, it's so specialized, I suppose, um, but it's so pleasurable. I would, I would argue the worst ballet scores are far better than the worst opera scores. And I quite like the challenge that it's not about your own ego. It's not about your own interpretation of the piece. It's, okay, tonight I have this couple dancing. She has very long legs. He has quite a short torso. He does spins this fast and he always likes the last 0.8 of a second of it to slow down slightly and you know you learn their bodies so intimately and sometimes you have to do that very very quickly and so each night it's like um you know skiing a, a slalom race where you have the poles down the mountain and you have to sort of plot a course around them and they change each time each night with the ballet is like that so it's a slightly different set of markers to make a beautiful thing around make a beautiful course around somehow Wonderful answer. <laughs> Super. <laughs> well, it's the, only, it's the only sort of metaphor I can think to explain it because it's, it's so different to opera in that way um, in terms of pit conducting. But I, I get a huge amount of pleasure out of it. Um, of course, because I'm intimate with ballet itself as that driver, but I think it's unfairly maligned as a, an outlet of conducting work. I think it's really pleasurable to do and you can't get by with no technique because in an opera pit the orchestra can hear the singers so yes they're watching but a lot of their work is is listening and accompanying by ear ballet you don't have that at all they have no clue what's happening it's entirely down to the conductor to keep it together so it's a really it's a good test actually i think conducting students should be encouraged to do more of it So in January 2020, um, Symphony Nova Scotia announced you as their music director designate. When does that mean you start? Uh, well, all things going well, it will be starting in October. I know you didn't want to talk about COVID-19, but of course that puts a big question mark over when people's 2021 seasons will be starting and in what form. But technically I start in October of this year. Great. And so are you already devising or have you already devised your first season? The first season they already had planned uh, because the appointment process there, they were very rigorous. It was two years of trials and things that started off. There were about 12 of us on trial or 10 of us. 
and then the, this season just been there were two of us on trial um so it's been going on a long time and by the time that was all announced they had to have already had their planning in place for this coming season for the canadian government's funding scheme so this coming season i've not really had any input into a little bit the odd family concert or something like that that i've contributed to but the main repertoire the soloists were already in place so it'll be the following season that we get to build together they're a really lovely orchestra it's scottish chamber orchestra size and most of the repertoire they do is that size they augment sometimes but they definitely don't do massive triple wind stuff it's a smallish city but it's quite affluent very liberal left-wing a high percentage of tertiary educated people and professionals and a really interesting indigenous history along that coastline and that part of the country so there's loads of interesting stuff there lovely lovely people in the orchestra it it felt immediately like walking into a room with 40 mates from university that, that i hadn't seen in 20 years and we just sort of you know you sort of finished rehearsal and someone would just say oh i'm having a barbecue at my place do you want to come you know it was just so informal and relaxed and friendly no politics no egos in the room it was so so brilliant so we got on immediately and um they're really lovely to make music with as well they're really up for trying different things and to the point that they will try things and look up to see how, whether i liked it or not and if I give them a smile and a wink, we'll, we'll go with that. And, you know, there's, it's real banter in the room, if you know what I mean. It's really nice. Oh, it's wonderful when you have an orchestra that wants to do that with you. Mm, I know. I feel insanely lucky. How do you go about learning a score? With your piano playing background, do you learn it at the piano or do you sit at a desk? And when you learn a score, do you make many markings or are you one of these lucky people who store it all in their brain? I definitely don't store a great deal of it in my brain, at least not to begin with. So I do it at the desk or the table or on the plane or on the train rather than at the piano. And that's just because I, I fell out of the habit of it. Um, moving country so many times, I didn't have access to a keyboard for about 10, 12 years. So I've just sort of never gotten back into doing it now that I'm used to not doing it. So I, I like uh, sitting at a table or a desk or curled up on the couch and doing it. I quite like doing it somewhere quite noisy, like a cafe or a train station or something like that. A little bit of background noise helps for me. If it's complete silence, I get distracted and find myself on Twitter or something like that. But if there's a bit of noise and a few people knocking around, I can settle more for some reason. And I start, if I, if I have the luxury of plenty of time, then I start with the learning the biggest structures about the piece. So if it's within the bounds of tonality where does it begin and end and then make my way into all well, then over the four movements if it's a symphony what's the, the harmonic progression of those in relation to each other and then once i'm clear of that large structure then i'll start looking movement by movement well where's the development how far does that go from the tonic and how does it make its way back and very big brush strokes and I get reduced and reduced and reduced until it's at the point with, if, it's, if it needs it, if it's the kind of piece that it's useful to know this, bar by bar, I can be tracing what's happening harmonically. Now, if I look at, say, Mozart or Haydn, um, or Beethoven expositions and recapitulations, the developments are different. Um, you don't need to be, I don't find I need to be that specific anymore because you can see within eight or 16 bar phrases what's happening harmonically, there's far less to be tracing very carefully that it's simpler in that regard and from that you get an idea of the form and then i get it's very basic i get a, a pencil and a ruler just a normal black pencil and mark large phrases with a vertical slash so that i can at a glance see okay there are three four bar phrases and then a six bar phrase at the end and then i've got a double line down to show okay this is the beginning of a significant new section so i sort of do structural things like that depending on the layout of the score i might pencil in cues for myself that i need to remind myself or if it's not clear from the layout that that's actually trumpets 
not horns you know so every now and then you find a score that the the horns and trumpets are the other way around or or if there's something like um in the exposition this was a a coronglay solo but when it comes back in the recapitulation actually the violas are, are playing along at the same time then i'll mark that the violas have joined them so i'll have a little connecting line between the two to remind myself that there's a color change this time and the other thing i was just thinking is if you have divisi strings and it's not clear whether that's the second half of the firsts or actually a second violin part or you know things like that i would mark in there things like a, a forte piano or something like that that requires a really decisive or a subito forte or a subito piano that requires very much a decisive or active gesture to force it to happen then i would probably mark that and until i have it ingrained in my head that it's there and then i might rub it out but the only change i would say to that is if it's a lot of the kind of education and outreach engagement sort of concerts often you only get the scores a week before five days before some of them i've turned up on the morning and there's a score on the the desk and i'm rehearsing at 10 a.m so in those cases i'll be far more every everything written and every time change written in because i'm essentially you just have to sight read or learn it overnight that's very true often you get to do schools and family concerts and the, the scores arrive very late or the other one film music concerts when the higher companies don't send them until the last minute and you're left with two days to learn a you know a, a seven minute piece of film music um yeah that's when the, the pencils come out in strength absolutely and and i have no shame about it you know it, it it's just life and you do as with everything we do you do what you need to do to get the show on on the stage and to be helpful to the players and if that means drawing like a toddler on your score <laughs> crotch at 80 over the page you know then do that if that's going to help the, the players do what they need to do then do that So Holly, every conductor is being asked the same 10 questions at the end of the podcast, and you are no different. So shall we start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love sounds associated with nature. So in particular, I love the sound of waves on a shoreline, partly because I grew up on the coast. Um, but just that feeling of total, that sound rather of total silence, but just the gentle rolling of waves. And if I'm ever in a really noisy, horrible uh, hotel, I have an app that I can listen to as I sleep with waves crashing on a shore and that helps me sleep. In terms of a sound I hate at the moment, it would be the sound of American politics. And I, I mean that quite specifically and that, you know, we're, we're all looking at social media and things and quite often we'll be in bed before we go to sleep and flicking through Twitter and a video will pop up and the sound will come on of a, a certain American politician delivering some cringy um, press conference or something and it actually my entire body reacts <laughs> really extremely to it. It's the most abhorrent sound at the moment to me. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? If I was at home and I didn't have loads of housework to do, I would do something with craft, like some pottery or painting. Uh, I really enjoy doing things like that. Or if the weather was dreadful, I would probably play on my Xbox. I do love a bit of Xbox. If I had slightly longer than 24 hours, I would try and climb up a mountain, get into the hills somewhere. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? For me, there's definitely just one for this. I can reduce it to one, and that's Carlos Kleiber. I'm guessing he'll be on a lot of people's lists. <laughs> but he, um, he's, I don't know, he conducts with such generosity and spontaneity. And watching footage of him, you get the sense that the tempo really served 
the sense of line and was driven by harmony. It was never a, a regulated click in his head. It was always alive and singing and um, yeah, Kleiber for sure. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Well, this I have to do in categories, I think. And I definitely can't get it down to one. If I was gonna say, um, the, the conductors that interest me the most, I would say uh, the weird ones who kind of have a very niche in their interests and what they do. Someone like um, Philippe Hedeweger, you know, he, he's got a smallish pool of repertoire and it doesn't necessarily go particularly well when he tries to be a generalist. But within his specialism, you can get something utterly unique and deeply thought out. He, he chooses what he's going to show you, which is usually quite an interesting thing to show you, and he goes very deep into it, and I, I really enjoy that. So I, really, I like people like that who do quite niche particular things. Um, in terms of rehearsal, I'm going to separate the other favourites into rehearsal and technique. In terms of rehearsal conductors, I, I personally think you can't go beyond Ivan Fischer, Daniele Gatti, and I love Susanna Melki in rehearsal as well. She's a phenomenal conductor in rehearsal. But all of them, they'll take something and in a very short amount of time, completely reorder the way your ears hear it um, in very different ways, three totally different personalities. But they're, they're, they're three people who, when you watch in rehearsal, your mind explodes. In terms of beautiful technique, I would say at the moment my two favourites would be Pavo Yervi, I think has gorgeous technique. It's a lovely video of him on YouTube conducting Sibelius Valstrist. And it is just the most sumptuous, sweet, kind of invitational style of conducting. You know, he just invites the orchestra to play. He gives a suggestion and lets them respond. It's so nice. And the other person I love is Tugan Sokiev. If I could die with a technique half as good as Tugan Sokiev's, I would be a very, very happy woman. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Hmm. Quite possibly Sibelius Lemonkine and Sweet. Um, with the exception of the Swan of Tornello, which is not so hard to conduct, but the, the outer movements, kind of moderating these long, long, long expanses of an engine running somewhere in the strings with the verticals coming from elsewhere or, or an engine that has to be quite vertical and regular in the way it works actually in the strings, but then you get these long soaring kind of horizon-like melodies in the wind and brass and trying to make all of that work with rather bizarre tempo indications or confusing tempo indications. It's not entirely sure what he wants sometimes. I found that incredibly hard. The other really rock hard piece that springs to mind is Jörg Widman's Conbrio. I don't know if you've done that. Oh God, I've done that piece. Oh, you can't rehearse it for longer than about four bars at a time. No, it's unbelievable. It is one of the hardest things. I think it is, it is worth rehearsing because the piece that comes out at the end is really superb actually, but man alive, that was hard. Like every bar and a half, there's a completely different tempo change. There might be a, a specific tempo for two crotchets of a bar and then it's three times as fast, the rest of the bar. Absolute rock hard <laughs> music, but worthwhile doing. The worst is when you have something that's difficult to rehearse like that and the result at the end of it really doesn't kind of warrant the, the amount of effort put in, but that piece I think it does actually. I have to agree, I think that's a wonderful piece of music. It's just incredibly hard to put together. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Earl Grey tea. Simple answer. Very simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Oh, actually, am I allowed to say two things? Of course you are. First one is not going to be popular. I think we get paid too much. Well, probably not at my end of the career, but, but the big, big conductors, they get paid far too much. I don't think any industry, the, there is a any justification for the person at the top being paid that much more than the people on the lowest pay. I think it's obscene. 
and I think it's it's created it's contributed to a culture in which abuses of power can happen and we're really just a member of the percussion section and <laughs> the sooner we get back to thinking of ourselves that way that a lot of things will get better for a lot of people so I think we get paid too much I think also we um and this is not so much something that I want to change because I love it in many ways but I think we will have to move away from our reliance on touring and travel partly again the finances of it it's ridiculous how much money is spent on flying conductors around often in the first class and with first class accommodation and things um, at a time when we should be doing far less of it in terms of um, the environment and it, it sort of I don't know it's sort of a feels like an, a hangover from the big crazy padded shoulder 1980s if you know what I mean it's a sort of a self-indulgent aspect of what we do that I don't think is healthy anymore. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Ooh, I think if I wasn't conducting and finances allowed, I would want to be a potter or a furniture maker or something like that, something really practical with my hands, making a physical object that is useful to people. That would be the ideal foil <laughs> to being a musician. Complete opposite. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Cheesy mashed potatoes, fresh peas, a thick lamb or chicken stew, and a glass of quartz reef Pinot Noir from New Zealand. A superb answer. Thank you very much, Holly. What a fascinating talk with you today and I hope we can see each other very soon. You too, thanks. Thanks very much, it's been really enjoyable. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time I talk to a Dutch conductor who has also conducted opera and ballet as well as in the concert hall. He is also a highly regarded teacher of conducting and one of the most charming conductors you could ever wish to meet. Until then, bye-bye.